2: The volume.
3: NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger basketball wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. is more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code JOHN. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5 only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code John. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsible on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas. Licensed partner, Golden Nugget, Lake Charles, Louisiana, 21+. plus. Age varies by jurisdiction. Void in ONT. Bonus bets. Expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions terms and responsible gaming resources. What is going on, everybody? John Middlecoff, 3 and Out podcast. Monday Night Football. The Sandy Los Angeles Chargers take down Zach Wilson, who was not good. That was a rough night for the Jets' offense, so are the Chargers alive and the Jets dead? Jets actually play the Raiders this week, Sunday Night Football, and the Chargers play the Lions. A couple of interesting games, so we'll dive into that game. Uh, the Bengals, they're hot. They really are. Somehow they're in last place in their own division, but... They're coming you better watch out especially if t higgins is going to start rolling to him chase that offense looks awesome the bills have some issues and uh, the raiders and the giants so a couple thoughts obviously the giants quarterback situation is dire they have major problems with daniel jones tearing his acl tommy devito but this could lead to game-changing draft picks and the raiders some of these stories about Josh McDaniels are, I thought we did this 15 years ago. We're doing it again. And it sounds exactly the same. I mean, is this guy the an all-time con man? So we, we will dive into some thoughts on the Raiders as well as the Middlecoff mailbag, at John Middlecoff. Fire in those DMs. If you listen on Colin's feed, make sure you subscribe to the 3 and Out feed. Appreciate everyone who listens. we got podcasts coming. I went on with Colin last night. This podcast will do one Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we will keep on rocking and rolling. So let's go, baby. But first, I need you to go to your smartphone. I need you to grab your iPad, and I need you to go to your App Store. And I need you to download a little app that happens to be the official ticketing app of this podcast, Game Time. And when you download the Game Time app, here's what you need to do. Sign up for a pair of tickets. Football, basketball, hockey, starting concerts, comedy shows, You go to their map, interactive ticketing map, pick by price point, see where you want to sit. It gives you a line of sight to where you're sitting. And then hammer the promo code JOHN. That's J-O-H-N. J-O-H-N. Promo code JOHN. $20 off your first pair of tickets. Any event, any sport, any concert, any comedy show, game time. Download the game time app. Promo code JOHN. Jets, Chargers. Uh, (laughs) Where do we start I, I think we got to start with Robert Sala, the New York Jets, Zach Wilson. One, Robert Sala has seven kids. He has now coached Zach Wilson essentially for two straight years. And you're telling me he does not have one gray hair on that beard? You know, it'd be one thing if he was a 30-year-old coach like Sean McVay 10 years ago or whatever. Robert Sala is 44. Seven kids, Zach Wilson, no grace. Come on. Like that, that color job to me has some Coach K vibes. Good-looking guy. I respect it. I'm pro-Robert Sala, but he's coloring his beard out. This isn't Hollywood. This is MetLife. This is Jersey. Rumors have always had there's some bodies buried under there, the mob. This is tough guy city. Coloring the beard. I, I don't know. <laughs> Zach Wilson, I don't know either. The Jets are a varsity defense with a JV offense. Why they got Aaron Rodgers, who's on the sideline, somehow's walking around with a torn Achilles, No one knows how he's doing it, but he's doing it. But regardless, he can't play quarterback for them, and they're screwed because they're rolling out Zach Wilson in an offensive line that is terrible. Now, big picture, if Aaron had played, it's pretty clear it would not have been easy, and there would have been times he was running for his life. But Aaron Rodgers blindfolded on one leg with his right hand tied behind his back is better than Zach Wilson. Part of playing the quarterback position, we'll talk about later, Uh, C.J. Stroud, obviously Joshua Dobbs. We talk all the time, like, can you make this throw? Can you go through your reads? Well, it's a lot like a running back with the ball in his hands or a DB covering a wide receiver down the field. Do you have instincts, right? And instincts at quarterback is not something we often talk about. But you can tell it, especially with athletic quarterbacks, it's why Russell Wilson became a star it's why everyone a couple years ago wanted to trade for Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, you, Kyler Murray. You watch these athletes, and they just have a great feel for like doing 360s, avoiding the pass rush, keeping plays alive. And I'm not even talking about running down the field. I'm just talking about keeping plays alive behind the line of scrimmage. Josh Allen, Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, right? Zach Wilson has none of that. None of that. I mean, his instincts as a player are horrendous. And then just his accuracy on the move for a quote-unquote athletic quarterback is also awful. You could tell Troy tonight, who you know, I don't know where you rank Troy in the all-time quarterbacks. He was obviously a really good championship-level player and knows what it looks like. Right, has been calling the biggest games on Fox for a long period of time and down on Monday Night Football for a couple of years. Was disgusted watching Zach Wilson play. Was disgusted. Watching Zach Wilson, obviously when you have a bad offensive line, you got to get rid of the ball quick. you got to get the ball into your playmaker's hands. And some of those guys are open. Right now, it's not always his fault. Lazard had some bad drops. But how many times on slant routes or crossing routes does he airmail Garrett Wilson? And I think a lot like last year, and maybe he's a better guy this year in terms of knowing when to keep his mouth shut, knowing not to say something stupid that's going to want everyone in the locker room to kill him. It's got to be difficult to be a defense. At one point in time, halfway through that game, they were allowing almost three yards of play. They were dominating. Herbert, one, I, I... Listen, I know the Chargers won in pretty dominant fashion, so I, I can't really shit on Brandon Staley. And like I've always said, he has nothing to do with the offense. I'm pro-Kellen Moore. And I understand the Chargers, Ladanian Tomlinson and Lorenzo Neal are not walking through that door to run the ball down your throat. I don't care if it's Austin Eckler I don't care if it's me or you. When you get up 14 points against the New York Jets, they want you to throw the ball. All they can do is rush the passer and create a turnover that way. I would have ran it every single play, punted, and played defense because they were not scoring. They cannot score touchdowns, especially when your defensive linemen are going to play like that and that's their offensive line. You're going to dominate. And halfway through the game, I look at halftime, I'm like... They're throwing the ball down. They had 21 pass attempts. 21. 14-3 lead. A lot like the Eagles game. The only way they can come back is for you to turn the ball over. Throw a pick six, drop back, let one of their 17 pass rushers force a fumble. I don't care that you got Justin Herbert. I don't care if Dan Fouts is playing for you, Phillip Rivers. It does not matter. Run the ball every play. And they didn't, and it kind of kept the Jets alive because their defense... The, the team speed they have on defense, the pass rushers they have on defense, the amount of defensive backs, how well their linebackers are playing. But it doesn't matter if you can't score touchdowns. You know this is not the 2000 Ravens or the 85 Bears. It's 2023. Like you got to get to 14, 17 points to have a chance against anybody. And and tonight with that version of Zach Wilson, I'm sorry. And let's face it, not all like their offensive line is horrendous. And that's another thing, Troy mentioned on the broadcast like every a lot of people bear responsibility for what we're witnessing on this offense right the quarterback situation the protection situation like Brees Hall and Garrett Wilson you know it's not his fault when guys are holding on screens that he takes 30 yards or Garrett Wilson makes a play and it's called back uh it's just a reality of their situation with their quarterback and their offensive line and listen it's a sexy story because the Jets, big brand. They've done huge television ratings this year. They play the Raiders coming up on Sunday Night Football. I just see no way possible that they can get to nine wins with this quarterback and that offensive line play. I don't care how good their defense plays because they need you to fuck up, right? You know, Bobby Knight died this week. What was his famous quote? Smart, loses more games than dumb wins or dumb, whatever, the I butchered that quote. Basically, dumb, loses a lot of games more than like playing it correctly. And when you are losing to the Jets, do never pass the ball. The only way you are going to lose is like the way the Eagles did. And the Chargers messed around with it for a second. Then they realized, what are we doing? They cannot score on us. And then the rest is history. Where did I read this? Pro football talk, maybe? After Telesco, the GM of the Chargers, traded... J.C. Jackson to the Patriots. That day, he went into the defensive back room and apologized to the other DBs for paying a guy that much money who didn't care, work hard, or want to be there. (laughs) It's like, damn, that's pretty crazy. And the one thing you see, and I I think Telesco's done a pretty good job. I mean, that punt returner they got is really explosive. Uh, Obviously, Herbert to Joey Bosa to Khalil Mack, like Derwin James, they have a lot. Keenan Allen, how about that catch tonight? What a freaking grab. Cal Bears, baby, Uh, one of the last great players that program will ever have. But when you watch the Chargers, you go, God, Uh, even tonight. I mean, Herbert, it's very, very hard to throw on that defense. So statistically, his numbers did not look great. And he made some plays down the stretch and definitely did with his legs. But that's a team that has no business not being in the playoff hunt. Now they are back in the mix. They're 4-4. Like. You watch those two teams. One team has a legit chance to be a wild card team. The other just doesn't. I mean, they, they just don't. Now, here's the thing with the Chargers. This short week playing the Lions. You know, do I feel great? Now, it's in LA, which is not a home game. That's the other thing. They, they have no home field advantage. So people like me can make fun of their coach all they want. And it's easy to do and make fun of their owner for being cheap. But one fundamental problem with the organization is, is when they play a franchise who's now good, like the Lions, in a massive game for their team. All of a sudden, you win that. They get the Packers the next week. They'd be staring at six and four going into a Ravens game, right? All of a sudden, we got like, God are the Chargers back. The problem is, what's it going to be? Eighty percent Lions fans. So, like you watch the Chargers, there is no excuse with the amount of talent when healthy. You got Joey Bosa, Khalil back, and Derwin James playing on defense. I mean, you got Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen. Eckler had an awful game. It felt like he had 17 drops tonight. But he's a fantastic role player on an offense. The TCU guy they drafted in the first round, not so sure about that one. But ultimately, it might not matter. It's just can, you know, it's hard to even judge Brandon Staley. He's playing Zach Wilson. But you're going to need him this week playing Ben Johnson and the Lions. So the pressure's on him. And all of a sudden he wins. Then you get the Packers coming up. We'll look up and the Chargers will be six and four. So they're not dead yet. Speaking of a team that is not dead yet, when you draft a quarterback really high, whether it's one, whether it's three, whether it's 10, especially one, you hope that guy changes the fortunes of everyone in your franchise. And I would say historically in my life, Uh, the true cash cows in the sport of football. I'm talking the combination. It's typically coach and quarterback that not only change a franchise, that change all the players that play for that coach and with that quarterback, and then all the assistant coaches and the executives financially benefit and get a huge windfall from being surrounded by that, right? When I was really, really young, it was Walsh in Montana. And then I would say in the 90s, the thing that shot like a rocket ship was Holmgren and Favre. And then it became, for 20 years, Brady and Belichick. And now, currently, it's basically Mahomes and Reed. And there are only so many players. And listen, I think Zach Taylor, like his resume doesn't look terrible. And he gets a lot of credit for hiring Lou Amarono. Like, a lot of people could have hired him as a defensive coordinator. He did. Now, I know Bengals fans have nitpicked him over the years. And that's part of the nature of... Of being a you know a head coach a younger head coach with a superstar quarterback, but I I think he's pretty solid. Do I think he's like an all time great coach? Probably not, right? So when you look at Joe Burrow, he's basically like Peyton Manning. It doesn't matter who's coaching him, doesn't matter who he's playing with, and obviously he's playing with really good players. That guy is going to carry an organization to fucking greatness, and that's what that guy is doing right now. Think about two years ago, the Bengals, when he was drafted, then he got hurt. That franchise was in shambles. The next year, they're in the Super Bowl. Last year, they're going blow for blow with the Chiefs. Easily could have been in the Super Bowl again. And then this season, they start slow. I mean, they have the last couple years. But it's pretty easy now, looking back, like, he was injured. Because now when he's healthy, he's the best player in the freaking league. He's got 10 touchdowns over the last four games. He's easily been the best player on the field, basically, the last three or four games they've played. Last night on Sunday Night Football against Josh Allen, who also kind of needs to turn into Joe Burrow because his team's kind of in shambles. It's like, yeah, I'm going to play way better than you. I'm going to be the best player on this field. We talked about it last week. To me, this game was going to be defined by those quarterbacks are essentially in some order on a given week, two and three, right? Because Mahomes kind of has it entrenched with a couple Super Bowls, a couple MVPs. And I'd say Joe Burrow has kind of slid into number two. Obviously, Josh is battling a case of the turnovers. He's throwing like a pick a game these last five games. And what Joe Burrow, like the gap between those two teams, the other fascinating part about that game is in the playoffs, the Bengals beat the shit out of them. So for the Bills, I understand they have a lot of injuries this year, but that game was somewhat of a kitchen sink game. It's a game, a team in your conference, a team that you're going to have to go through in the playoffs. It's a team that's already beat you in the playoffs. And let's face it, that score did not reflect what we witnessed watching that game. There was a clear gap between the last place, (laughs) AFC North Cincinnati Bengals, and that Buffalo Bills team. Now, can the Bills get it together? I I wouldn't count them out yet, but relative to the Bengals, like, I'm sorry, they're no longer in the discussion. A lot of you have been firing in my DMs, stop putting the Bills on the top tier. Listen, they're not right now. As we sit here in early November 2023, the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Bengals, like the Bills aren't in their world. They're just not. And obviously Joe Burrow has changed a franchise that had kind of become a joke again, right? They had battled it. At different points and times in my life, they'd been a running joke, and then Carson Palmer and Ocho and Zada came in. Then they became a joke again, and then Marvin Lewis and kind of that – the Andy Dalton crew be- became really good with the Pac-Man and, and AJ Green and Ifer. And they got a bunch of really good Gio, Barney Bernard. And like, they were really, really good. And then they went through a lull again and now they feel like the best version. And it's mainly because of him. They've had some really good players over the last couple decades. This guy is easily their best player. And obviously how great chase is their connection. But what did he say after that game? I need. We needed. To, we we're gonna go after with T. Higgins. We needed to get him going, and they did. Now Mixon's playing well. That offense looks fantastic. That team is. I was thinking like if I was a little kid, and still played video games, I would be the Bengals for sure in Madden. I would be the Bengals for sure in NFL Blitz. <laughs> that would probably be my team. Because whenever I watch them, I'm like God, this team's fun. The the two receivers, the running back. I, I like just. I like their defensive coordinator. I like their whole squad. I I, I really do. So if I'm a Bengals fan, I'm pumping my chest out this week, even though we're in last place, but we will not be there long. Okay, the Giants and the Raiders. Before we dive into the Raiders, sometimes you just get a season from hell. You know, and listen, part of life is you go through some shit. And the more shit you go through, the older you get, you realize, you know the sun comes up the next day? No matter how bad, personally or professionally, whether you lose a job, you lose a parent, I've been there both places, It's, it can really knock you on your ass and you just realize as time goes on, like you don't have a choice. You have to move forward. You can only have a pity party. You can only stay in kind of, you know, a negative spot in a dark place for so long. Like the world keeps rolling, right? And the older you get, the easier it is to get through tougher times in football. It's no different. Like going through a shitty season is God awful. There's nothing worse my second year in the NFL was the quote-unquote Eagles dream team, and we started 4-8. And, and honestly, it, fe- it might have been 0-12. It felt terrible. I was in the office every day. It made me think, like, I want to quit football. I-, I can't do this. Somehow, I think we won the last four games, went 8-8. Eight and eight. It was not an 8-8 eight and eight team. It was not a very good team. Next year, won like four games. You go through bad times, and the key is you have to keep losing. <laughs> that- that's the only key because there is no benefit – when shit hits the fan, to beef anywhere in the middle ground. You have to have one direct option, and that's draft really high, and then change your franchise. We just talked about the Bengals, right? What happened to them? For a couple-year span, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, because they drafted high, T. Higgins changed their entire franchise. Just a couple players. And let's face it, the Giants made some terrible decisions because it was like, ah, they were riding high. Everyone was so positive. They paid Daniel Jones all that money. They franchised Saquon Barkley. It's a disaster. I said it a couple weeks ago. Trade Saquon Barkley. You don't think this, like right now sitting there, they wish they would have traded. Uh, you can't trade him to the Cowboys. You can't. You wouldn't want to trade Saquon Barkley to the Cowboys for like their second round pick. Would have done that in a heartbeat. John Morrow wouldn't, but he's not a great running a team. Look at him. Look look what the Giants have become. And the Daniel Jones situation, listen. It's an unlucky, obviously he'd been playing poorly, but... But the play in which that he tore his ACL, pretty innocuous, looked like a little slip. All of a sudden he's back in the back of the stadium and then it's a torn ACL. Well, now there's no excuse, right? They're, they're playing with Tommy DeVito. They are going to consistently lose. And it's all going to be about what they do this offseason. Do they pick the right quarterback? The other thing is when you lose and you draft two or three, you draft two or three in every round. It gives you an incredible opportunity to, to change your franchise forever. And let's face it, they've kind of been stuck with Daniel Jones, right? And obviously they paid him when they they shouldn't have, so they're even stuck longer. This might be a get-out-of-jail-free card. So sometimes when it rains, you just have to realize the sun's going to come out. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but the sun eventually is going to come out. So this season is going to get even uglier as a Giants fan. All you have to realize is like this Daniel Jones situation that you'd been looking in the mirror from about the second game, like, what are we going to do? This might be your out. And if they pick the right quarterback, which is always hard, it's a 50-50 proposition to begin with, uh, could change your franchise forever. The Raiders, or at at least for the foreseeable future. I, I was thinking about this today, because whether you're old, whether you're young, you know, we see coaches in the NFL right now, Pete Carroll, is 72 years old. I think Andy Reid's in his mid-60s. Obviously, Bill's over 70. Nick Saban's over 70. And then you see some of these coaches like Sean McVay, who's my age. He's 37, 38 years old. To me, as a coach, as a human, I don't care what you do, you either can relate to people or you can't. And just because you can't relate to people as a coach, as whatever you do, doesn't mean you can't figure out and be successful at your job. But it always helps to be able to uh, just understand what makes people tick. And some people are excellent at that. I would say Andy Reid, elite at that. Pete Carroll, unreal at that. It's one one of their strengths as a coach. And some guys, like Josh McDaniels, at least as a coordinator, clearly was not great at it. But it didn't matter because he always had the umbrella of Tom and Bill could handle that shit. Say what you want about Bill. He could be a curmudgeon and an angry guy. But when you notice the McCordys, the Gronks, the Vrabels, whoever, when they talk about Bill, from a coaching perspective, Randy Moss, he's actually pretty easy to interact with. People like dealing with him when it comes to coach-player relationship, if you're a decent player, just communicating. Josh McDaniels, you get him out of the umbrella, he can't interact with anybody. And I gave him the benefit of the doubt last week when he was fired. I was like, you know, I don't think it was as negative as, as the Denver situation the last time around. I think this was more, the team was awful. Well, it turns out the Jay Glazer report, all the other stories, it was equally as as bad. People hated this guy's guts. And the only reason, I don't know about you, but I don't hate that many people anymore, but I'm not really around that many people. Like, I don't go into an office every day. (laughs) When I've thought about it, and i thought about it today, the people I've hated over the years, right, in my adult life, have basically been people that I spent all these hours around in an office setting, and you can't really avoid them, right? Well, it's no different as a player and a coach, right? Why would they hate Josh McDaniels? Because I, I don't, just because I see you say something I disagree with on the internet or whatever, I don't care, right? But when you spend time with someone on a daily basis, you can get to a point where you despise them really quick, especially if they're a superior. And jo- one thing that was clear with Josh McDaniels, His tact and his ability to interact with human beings, whether you grew up in a country club, whether you grew up in the hood, whether you play linebacker, or whether you're a kicker, he has no ability to do it. And every guy to a man in that locker room pretty clearly wanted that fucking guy gone. And I saw some people on the internet saying, you know, if this is what low-level teams do when players go to the owners and air their grievances. And I'd say, yeah. If that was, if people did that to a successful coach, right, a guy with pelts on the wall, a dude that had a respect, I'd be like, yeah, those are probably loser players. And then I look at the Raiders locker room, like, well, who are their main team captains? Max Crosby, who's like universally beloved and respected in the NFL. Who's their star on offense? Oh, I don't know, a guy that just came from the Packers and was used to winning and is also known as one of the higher character guys in the league. Now, here's the thing about football. If you just got Josh McDaniels and Antonio Pierce on a whiteboard and just said, go to town, there is probably no chance that Antonio Pierce, even though he played at a really high league, could go toe-to-toe with that pen and that whiteboard. Why? Josh has two decades right next to Bill Belichick. Like The knowledge he has in his mind and his head and his ability in a film room by himself or with players is probably elite. But all that shit is completely irrelevant, right? A lot of people have great ideas. A lot of educated individuals, in theory, should be very successful, yet they can't execute anything. Think how many people you have met that have these ideas and nothing ever becomes of it. And then you watch all these successful people who maybe they didn't even talk about it. They just fucking did it. And part of coaching, the only place you get judged, is on the field. No one gives a shit how many offensive plays you know. And then clearly your ability to articulate, coach, get those players to take your place and believe in them and you and then go execute it, it can't go any worse for this guy. This guy, to me, for whatever reason, is the ultimate con man. Because I watched some different snippets over his time when he got hired, his last couple years with the Patriots. I'm like, God, this guy seems like a pretty normal guy. And then you realize he's been faking it the whole time. He can't be normal. I, I've I've sat with a lot of these football coaches. Half a football is just bullshitting with players or, or your other coaches. It's not that fucking hard. And to have everyone terrified for their life on a daily basis, like like you are Bill Parcells, how did Josh I he couldn't have learned from it because he doesn't have the capability. And Antonio Pierce, is he gonna go on to be a really good coach? I have no clue. Does he know what he's doing? From a coaching perspective, I don't know. But one thing he clearly can do, and he did it as a player when he was a team captain for a Super Bowl champion, and he did it immediately this week, is he could just interact with the guys as a human being, as a man, man to man. Just, I'm going to give you some respect. I want to listen to what you have to say. Because I don't know it all. And I think that's part of Josh's problem because of his success under Belichick and Brady. He believes to his core that he knows it all. The problem is he clearly does not. And the thing you have to know the most when it comes to being a good coach is then how to interact, motivate, and coach that player. And that's something that he clearly lacked. And at this point in time, with all the separation from the Denver disaster to where he was just fired a week ago, he's never going to figure it out. He literally had a decade to do the the look-in-the-mirror introspection and think and grow, and change. Sometimes you just can't change, right? In football and scouting, the famous saying was always like, a leopard doesn't change his spots. Josh McDaniels isn't changing what Josh McDaniels is. This is who he is. And do you know what we found out? He's number two. Make him your offensive coordinator. You better have, you know, a very powerful head coach. You better have high character guys in the building because if Josh is ever going to be tasked with the guy communicating to your players constantly you're going to have problems. And you remove Tom from that equation, the fucking building burns down, and it burns down quick. So props to Antonio Pierce for, I don't know, just being nice to guys, just having conversations, just listening to them. I didn't think it could go down that road again, but you could argue the Glazier story, some of the things we've heard, borderline just as embarrassing of what Josh went through in 07 and 08. Okay, last but not least, Morgan and Morgan player that made it look easy there's so many guys we go with right joshua dobbs comes off the couch the plane doesn't even know the playbook cj stroud throws four five touchdowns and 500 yards but i'm a huge fan of this guy and i think sometimes when you get in positions where it's your quarterback gets paid the star receiver you know is going to get an astronomical amount of money and you're kind of the number two guy. It's like, well, is this team, they talked about trading me in the offseason, then they don't. Are they going to let me hit free agency? Are they actually going to sign me? I'm kind of in no man's land. We're all human beings. It's easy to get into a rut as a person, especially as a player. And I think T. Higgins, you know, he battled some injuries early, but that game against Buffalo, uh, eight catches, 110 yards, him going with Burrow after the game, you know, talking to the sideline reporter. And you could just see the spirit in him. And if you get T. Higgins rolling, we know how good Chase is, assuming his back's going to be fine after that crazy catch. Joe Mixon's rolling. like That's the best offense in the league. That level of talent is just – that's like what the Chiefs were three or four years ago when they had Hill with Kelsey. That, that's what that offense is. It's unstoppable when the quarterback's going to play like that. So props to T. Higgins for keep swinging. Props to Joe Burrow for keeping him lined up and just – Props to the Bengals. Like I said earlier, really enjoy watching them play. If you're ever injured, you can check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. For more information, go to ForThePeople.com slash John or dial Pound Law. Pound 529 from your cell phone. That's ForThePeople.com slash John from your cell.
1: Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season.
5: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Don't miss the action this weekend when the NFL heads to Germany for the Frankfurt Games. These games will air on NFL Network and stream on NFL Plus. For a limited time, Verizon customers can get Netflix and NFL Plus for just $25 a month with Plus Play. That's $120 in annual savings. Plus Play is a platform where Verizon customers can shop, manage, and save on subscriptions you already love. Like NFL Plus. With NFL Plus Premium, you get access to live games on mobile, NFL Red Zone, and NFL Network, which means you can catch the Frankfurt games and save. Just go to Verizon.com slash the volume to bundle and save before the games. Hurry. This offer ends soon. Again, that's Verizon.com slash. The volume. Okay, let's dive into the Houston Texans and their quarterback. And listen, the fun part about any draft, beside maybe there's one or two players, a draft, that it's just like legitimately impossible for them not to be decent. Right? Like Julio Jones or Miles Garrett or Vaughn Miller. Like, even if they don't live up to the hype, They are going to play in the league for a decade-plus. Clowney, and Sue, neither one of those guys, I would say, lived up to the billing and still went on to have a decade-plus career. Sue, who I went to a dinner with a guy on Friday that said they saw him at the mall in Arizona, I mean, is still trying to play. Obviously, Jadavion Clowney's still going. Like, there are some guys, no one is guaranteed to go to the Hall of Fame, but some guys floor is so freaking high that it's impossible for them to quote-unquote be a bust or, or not just a solid starter for a long time. The overwhelming majority of players are risky. There is no guarantee, and especially quarterbacks. So no matter how good you are in college, no matter how much we all love watching you, there is a huge element of risk at that position. If you watch C.J. Stroud over this couple years at Ohio State, it was stupid how effortlessly it was for him to throw the ball. How beautiful the ball looked in the air. Now it was easy to be like, well, look who he's throwing to. It's so easy. Their team's so much better. You could argue either side. And then that Georgia game happened. You're like, God, I've never seen him look like that. And I would say I went back, and I watched a decent amount of that game yesterday. And I don't blame you if you weren't dialed into Texans-Tampa. And then I went today, and I watched every one of his throws. And I think a huge area that separates quarterbacks from being good players and basically busts guys that are drafted high that can't be long-term starters is the ability to layer throws. Most guys can throw a go route. Most guys can be accurate on an out route. Most guys on a quick, you know, wheel route or an option route, they can hit those the majority of the time. It's can they layer throws between different types of uh, zone defenses and just different defensive concepts where there's a linebacker, your receiver, and then another defensive back. And you have to do that time and time again to win games in the NFL. And a lot of guys can never do that or are never accurate doing that. They can attempt to do that. They throw picks. They overthrow it. They just can't consistently hit that pass. That's what all the great and long-term starting quarterbacks can do pretty consistently. Layer touch passes with accuracy. And that's one thing... C.J. Stroud does currently with his eyes closed. I would say his arm is good, not great. His athleticism is definitely better than we once thought going back to the Georgia game. He could move. I wouldn't call him some crazy athlete, but athleticism is something that if he does have to leave the pocket, he can keep plays alive. He did that several times. And he's kind of an instinctive playmaker. But inside the pocket, one of his comps was... Jared Goff, and people forget, like, for a while that was, like, a negative thing. Jared Goff was the number one overall pick, had a ton of success in L.A., and is now kicking ass and taking names for the Detroit Lions. What Jared Goff does not possess, like, his athleticism for NFL standards it, between 0 and 10 is close to a 0. It's like, it's, I'd put it like a 1 or a 2. If Lamar and Kyler and guys like that are, like, 9s, 10s, CJ is probably somewhere in the middle but he definitely is much more confident moving around and throwing. It's not something that he wants to rely on. So to me, his ceiling relative to Jared Goff, who you can tell when it's built well around him is pretty damn good, is higher. And listen, I I, I can't pretend I like Bryce Young more. It's pretty clear, like, based on the evidence we have, there is not a soul in the NFL, and that includes Carolina, that wouldn't take C.J. Stroud over Bryce Young. Now, at quarterback, a lot, you're dependent on your offensive coordinator, your skill guys, a lot of stuff is out of your control, but if you just watch CJ and you watch Bryce, it doesn't really look like they're comparable right now as talents. Obviously, a lot to, there's a lot of unknown with Anthony Richardson, but his skill set and physical attributes are the best of the group, and Will Levis has a really good arm as well, but CJ is just a natural passer. Is something that clearly translates from college and the accuracy on those layered throws, and then you, you never know with the poise. And that that's something I think sometimes in college, when your team is so much better, how are you gonna react when you don't have the protection and you're getting peppered by NFL guys making 10, 20, 25 million dollars? And he, he shows a lot of that. So to me, the accuracy, the touch passes on the layered throws and the poise, because his stats are pretty stupid right now. And I would say it feels like he's a runaway train based on the way things are going for Rookie of the Year. He's got 14 touchdowns, one interception so far in the season. Obviously had a historic day against Tampa, but if I'm a Texans fan, like my coach, I'd buy all the stock in D'Amico, and I would have before he even accepted a head coaching job. He was destined to be a stud head coach, just like Mike Vrabel once upon a time. But for those guys to be good and win, you need competent quarterback play, right? And listen, we can say what we want about Ryan Tannehill, but for a couple years' stretch, he kind of became an Alex Smith version. And if you're a really good coach and I give you Alex Smith, like you're going to the playoffs. Vrabel is rattling off playoff wins and appearances. And for D'Amico to be a good head coach, he needs a competent quarterback. And it sure looks like he got one on a rookie contract. I would be very, very excited. Who knows? Like, are you going to make the playoffs? I think Jacksonville's going to win that division. Could you make a wild card? It's hard because of the AFC. But I, I would say the uh, the sun is shining pretty bright right now in the Houston Texans. Joshua Dobbs. We talked about it last week when he was traded. I think one of the best attributes any one of us can have is adaptability. Because I don't care what you do for a living, whether you're a doctor, whether you're in sales, whether you're a podcaster or whether you're an NFL quarterback, you're going to be thrown curveballs either on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis. Things that you are not expecting are going to happen professionally. And this is something I know me personally, I've had to work a lot at. right. I can be very regimented. I can be very kind of stuck in my ways. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way successful people operate. Obviously, you have to have a discipline in whatever you're doing and some people operate better uh, with things laid out than others but you have to be prepared when you were going to do something and then you're not able to do that because something else came up or this isn't working so how are we going to get it done? And I would say most successful people in any industry are the quickest and have, I would even say, the best attitude when it comes, we got to figure this out. Right? And not just, Argh! freak out, meltdown. Because the moment you melt down, and listen, I've had my fair share of meltdowns, nothing gets accomplished. And at quarterback, what separates just solid players from guys that just can't function? I would say historically, when you're watching a guy in the pocket completely unravel and meltdown. And a lot of times, those guys know the plays. Those guys may have been on a team for a long time. Joshua Dobbs now has proven that he can show up somewhere, not really know the plays, not know what's going on, and just kind of figure it out. Those are the type of people I, I like betting on in life, the figure-it-out guys. Can you just figure it out, right? I mean, and clearly, anyone listening to this, some people are better than that than others, right? And obviously, we all have a certain skill set in whatever we do professionally. But outside of that skill set, like, can you figure some things out? In Joshua Dobbs, everyone swears by the guy's character, As a leader, as a guy, all the intangible stuff, he passes with flying colors. But there's a football element of showing up to a team. He didn't know his teammates' names. He obviously does not know the plays. He wasn't even supposed to have to play on Sunday. But what happens? Starting quarterback rookie gets throttled, concussion out. Here you go, Josh. You don't know our cadences, you don't know our plays. Shit, you don't even know the majority of the guys in the huddle's names. We need you to help us. And what did he do? Helped him win a game. Because that's what Josh Dobbs does. I would imagine Josh Dobbs operates like that in most aspects of his life. right? Whether it's putting a desk together at his house, whether it's figuring out how am I going to get to point A to point B, or whether it's figuring out a play on a drive late in the game when he barely knows the playbook. That's who Josh Dobbs is. That's why I would bet on that. If Joshua Dobbs was a stock, I would bet on the individual. And one thing for his NFL stock, I would say he has done, because I Googled it yesterday during the game. How old is this guy again? 28 years old. I would say at minimum, he has set himself up for another seven, eight years in his NFL career. Maybe not as a full-time starter, but as a guy that successful teams will want on their team as a backup. Worst case scenario, $3, $4, 5000000 million to back up Patrick Mahomes, to back up Dak Prescott or Josh Allen. So if those guys get injured and shit hits the fan in the middle of a game, maybe a playoff game, you're capable enough to come in and just help figure it out. And obviously, as a player, have the physical characteristics to make some plays athletically with your arm and guys naturally rally around you. So I don't know if you like... I don't see how if you follow football, you can't respect this guy to the nth degree. To admire what he just did on Sunday is just freaking remarkable. What a cool story. And speaking of something that isn't a cool story, E40 said once in Rapper's Ball, in the mid-90s, a song he did with Too Short, don't buy an $85,000 car before you buy a house. This was in like 95 or 96. So essentially what he was talking about is like a $250,000 car in, in inflationary 2023 times. Like why are you spending money on that when you're renting an apartment? Buy a fucking house first. And when the Atlanta Falcons drafted a running back at number eight, when they were several players and a quarterback away from being anything, it made absolutely no sense. I believe still November 6th, this is not playing Monday morning quarterback. I believed it at the time. And every day since, it's one of the dumbest draft picks I'd ever seen. Especially when you factored in how good their running game was last year with the guys they had on their roster who were all coming back on rookie contracts. I can't fathom that pick. Now, I've defended Detroit, average draft, not many players, but they turned their running back also into a tight end, which we talked about last week. I do not understand the Falcons. And clearly, even once they got Bijan, their coach struggles to use him. So it's like, what's the point of even having this running back? When you're not a running back away, drafting Saquon, drafting Bijan, regardless of their speed, their ability in the open field, how, just how talented they are, just doesn't make sense. Now, we could argue till we're blue in the face who they should have taken. You just can't take a running back in that spot. And I think it reflects their franchise. Like, what is going on there? And I heard Michael Lombardi say this about the Raiders I think it's starting to kind of come into play for Arthur Smith that you can only have so many kick-in-the-dick losses that everyone's making fun of you for, that your owner's watching, like, how do we lose that game? Anyone can lose a bad game. It's football. Crazy things happen. Nick Saban once attempted to kick a field goal in the Iron Bowl, and I forget the guy's name. I think his last name was Davis because the Niners signed him as an undrafted free agent. Took it to the house, right? It was kind of be one of the most embarrassing moments in Nick Saban's coaching career at Alabama. It happens, right? But when you start losing, and Josh McDaniels did, did this a lot, to Jeff Saturday, to Baker Mayfield, to, to the dude from Shepard College, it's like, what are we doing here, right? And I, I think that's what Atlanta's starting to feel like. What is our direction? Where are we going? Because Detroit, very early on, it felt like they had a plan, they had a direction. Even when they were losing It's why last year, if you watched Monday uh, Night Countdown, Dan Campbell started crying, talking about the 2021 team, the team that sucked, the team that laid the foundation to kind of where they're at now, because he felt like they were building something like kind of where they were headed. Where is this Atlanta team going? To me, it feels like they're going in no man's land, and their draft over the last several years of just taking all these skill positions kind of reflect that. Like They don't understand football, which is kind of crazy. Everyone loves Arthur Smith. His dad was super successful. One time I kind of got, I wouldn't say drunk with him. I was at a bar sitting right next to him at the Combine years ago. Feels like an easy guy to root for, but I'm just sure, not sure him and his GM really know what they're doing from a team building standpoint. And then it reflects in the games. There was a visual yesterday of, you know, Jonathan and Robert Kraft sit together at the Patriot Games. They have forever. You know, a lot of times, like Bon Jovi or Jay-Z or someone famous is sitting next to him. But it's always Jonathan Kraft, Robert Kraft, right? And there was this visual yesterday as they were losing the Commanders, a team that traded their two best players. I almost said Heineke, but it's Sam Howell, who Jonathan Allen called their franchise quarterback. Of Jonathan Kraft, I don't know if he was looking at his phone, reading a text message. We're just looking at his dad, and he essentially mouthed the word, we're just not good enough. And it became like, I can't believe... Wait, Jonathan Kraft, watching the New England Patriots in 2023, mouth, we're not good enough? That'd be like me saying, it's hot in Arizona in the summer. Or, you know, a, a company going bankrupt is having some financial trouble. Let's file that one under no shit. So... Maybe we could look into, like, are the Crafts going to do something? But them mouthing we're not good enough is not a story. The team being 2-6 and or 2-7 and or whatever the hell the record is, headed nowhere fast, tells you every... All you have to do is watch them for three or four series and know this team stinks. (laughs) They're going nowhere and nowhere fast. And if anything, every loss they have is good. Because when you're not good... Every win is so pointless, right? It's like I talked about earlier with Burrow and Brian Flores. When you have the chance to lose when you're 2-11, and 11, there is no point to win any of those games. It does nothing because the majority of guys on your team are not going to be back. You're going to have a new quarterback. Like winning a random game in the middle of the December when you are drafting second and it moves you to sixth is the dumbest business decision you can make in this billion-dollar industry. I, I will never support it. I have no problem with anyone trying to win in October, hell, even November. Like, I get why Bill's trying to win right now. Every game Bill loses, he's trying to win. Now, once we get to, like, Christmas, losing those last three games should be a mandate from the owner. I, I will always support This big boy business, right? I, there is no tanking in the NFL like there is in the NBA that where teams just literally tank the entire season. Same with baseball. But in the NFL, I, I do support like, yeah, let's just throw out a bunch of practice squad guys the last three games of the season. No issue with that. Because I know, hell, I'm watching Eberflus yesterday. It's like, God, this guy's trying. <laughs> That's the sad part about all these Bears losses. He's really, really trying to win. Yeah, he looks terrible, by the way. I mean, he just looks like a guy who hasn't seen the sun in months. Uh, this job is aging him. Watch him on the sideline against Saints. Like God, I'd be shocked if he makes his return. And think about so the craft thing is one of the biggest nothing burger stories of all time. He literally was watching his team, who is terrible, and then he mouthed, "We're not good enough." I mean, that's thanks. Is the sky blue as well? (laughs) Like, thanks, Captain Obvious. Uh, Obviously, the internet loves to make this stuff something bigger than it is, but it's what everyone's thinking in the stadium watching that game, every Patriot fan watching that game, hell, every person that roots for the Washington Commanders watching Belichick's team. And speaking of the Bears, they signed Sweat to, like, a four-year, $98 million deal and gave him over $70 million. This is what I said on the trade when I couldn't wrap my head around it. There is no way, even on the open market, Anyone was offering a guy that doesn't is a consistent double that he's not a double digit sack guy every year basis 70 plus million dollars. Now, because it's free agent, free agency, guys get overpaid. Look at McGlinchey, right? Starting right tackle, Sean Payton gives him 50 million dollars. Honestly, probably 15, 10 million dollars guaranteed more than other teams were even willing to pay. So you pay a premium once you hit free agency. Sweat. <laughs> anyone offering that guy $60 million guaranteed on the open market? Maybe, you know, in that 55, 60, because he's probably ideally a 45, $50 million guaranteed guy. So you add another 10 on top of it, but no one's giving him that contract. And this is what I said. If you want this guy, why don't you just buy him on the open market? You could just make him an offer that he can't refuse and also keep your second round pick. I will never support what they did. I think it's just awful NFL business because the pick they gave up is just too valuable. That pick's going to be 34, 35 and you gave him a contract which you would have gladly given him in the free agent market. Hell, even if that $70 million guaranteed or 71, whatever the exact number was, you had to go to 78 just to make sure you got the guy. So be it. (laughs) What that extra six, seven million dollars is worth keeping that second round pick. So, I, I, I still can't get over that move. A couple other quick things on the college front. One thing's pretty clear. If you watch their games this year, and I knew this talking to people in college football, Texas has the best team money can buy right now. Right? They might not be the best team in the country, but their team, if, if, if it was public like it is in the NFL or basketball or baseball, and we saw their books, they have the most expensive team in college football. They have the highest budget, allocated toward players everyone I mean their third string quarterback is making millions of dollars their roster is fucking loaded and for about the last 10-12 years Texas became one of the most overrated programs in the country all you gotta do is look at their draft picks they didn't have any for a long period of time they were not an NFL factory this team that ain't the case last year obviously they produced some good players this team even has more And Sark has no excuse to not go to the playoffs. He's not a very good coach. He's just not. I'm sorry. His inability, he's playing Kansas State, which is a well-coached, overachieving program the majority of my life. They do not have nearly the talent. He has countless players on his team that make more money than the overwhelming majority of the coaching staff for Kansas State. I bet he has a couple of players that make more than their head coach, who I think I looked up, makes about $4 million. Definitely Arch, <clears throat> and maybe even Quinn Ewers. But Sark's inability to run the ball because he's addicted to passing, to me, makes no sense. Now, he's playing with a second-string quarterback who is very physically gifted, but is not, I wouldn't call exactly, C.J. Stroud passing the ball, turning the ball over, throwing in completions. And instead of, when he was running the ball all over them leaning on that in the second half and just annihilating them and easily winning the game. He just got pass happy. And if it wasn't for, I'm all for going for it in overtime or late in the game when you're a massive underdog. But as you watch that game play out and Texas's quarterback play is more than questionable. I don't know if I'm going for it. (laughs) Like I think I'm kicking field goals, kicking extra points and continuing the game. So when Kansas State went for it at the end of the game, I didn't love it. I didn't love it at all because I thought like it's one thing when you don't have the ability to just beat them straight up, right? And obviously they have more talented players than you, but you're out coaching them. You are stopping them on defense because you know he's just going to keep throwing the ball and their quarterback is not being very accurate. So, listen, if you gave this roster to Saban, to Kirby – I would say they're going to win the national championship. I still think, you know, It you just look at their schedule. Oklahoma now is in shambles. The Texas more than likely is going to be in the playoffs. But I just do not trust Sark in, the, in these big spots at all. And then last but not least, this Harbaugh-Stallion story. It just is the gift that keeps on giving. He resigned, fired, whatever, Friday. I mean, some of the pictures that have gone viral. Ryan Day's brother now is reportedly the guy that uncovered it all and turned it in. Ryan Day was asked about it. He no commented. The one thing I love, I don't like, I love, and I was a buddy of mine, Michael Madsen, was here this weekend, and me and my girlfriend went to dinner with with him and his wife and some other people that they work with, and uh, he was telling me he has gone to a bunch of different games across the country, and he said, you have to go, because we had the, I had on like the four boxes, right? Like USC, Washington, Bama LSU and like two other games, and he's like, I I went to Bama LSU, and he's like, it was the coolest experience of my life. He's like, if you've never been to that game, you got to go. Like, not just any SEC game, you got to go to that game. He's like, LSU in Bama, either one, go to that game. They went in Alabama. It was the year that you know I think Joe Burrow won the national championship. He said it was just incredible. He's also been to a game at Tennessee. He said was sweet. He's like, I went to the uh, Red River Rivalry last year. And the Cotton Bowl, he's like, that yeah, was cool. It was cool. But it wasn't that. So the, there's a passion in the SEC and the Big Ten that when stuff like this happens, the other schools are not going to stop. Their fan bases, their radio hosts, their bloggers, it's going to be relentless. So everyone in the Big Ten is, and listen, Harbaugh's an easy guy to hate. That program, the way he runs it's easy to hate. And then now you factor in the story, they stealing stuff. I, I get it. But I love the passion that it brings out from Ohio State, from Penn State, from even the Purdue coach talking shit. Like, it's these are nuclear secrets. How passionate and serious everyone takes it makes it extremely entertaining. There was a story yesterday that he was going to get suspended and then Michigan was going to appeal with a lawyer and file for an injunction. It's like, I can't keep up with everything going on. But I don't want this story to end. It's just the headlines of the story, Connor Stallions, thank you for your service, are just too entertaining to me. And uh, what I think is most fascinating about this is Michigan could easily win the national championship. They definitely, I mean, they beat Ohio State. They're going to the playoffs. I think they're going to be the one seed and more than likely favored. So it's just going to be, the the story ain't stopping. So even if you are kind of tired of it, you better buckle up because it ain't going anywhere.
5: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay, let's dive into a little mailbag. At John Middlecoff, Instagram, fire in those DMs, get your question answered here on the show. Question on the Dallas catch at the goal line. Why is the receiver deemed down as soon as his knee is down, but the receiver still has to complete the catch going to the crown? Seems like a double standard. Well, if you're asking me what a catch is, I got no clue. Uh, I would say, I don't know. I, I My issue with that play is, in that situation, as a receiver, even if the route is whatever specific, three yards or two yards or yard and a half or whatever it may be, you got to get an up-depth where you're in the, in the end zone, right? So even if the guy's all over you, you have to be in the end zone. It's like even if i call it's third and 8 and the game's on the line and we have a 7-yard route i have to cheat it a little bit and get over the first down marker so uh, listen to to try to explain why you know the catch rules are the catch rules like i think it's pretty clear when we're sitting on their on our couch is that a catch or is that not a catch right we should be able to do that but that's the nfl has removed that from us and there are 8 million different ways the only cool part about a catch now is it's pretty easy to tell on the sideline. I guess it always has been, right? With the two feet, the dude making some of the catches, Dell, uh, the rookie third rounder for the Texans, was great at dragging his feet. But in terms of going to the ground, I mean, it's, it's an exhausting rule to even try to follow. Since it's been confirmed that DJ has torn his ACL and will be out for the year, who should the Giants aim the draft? I like May, but leery about another quarterback from the ACC... I'm not sure how good Caleb will be behind the O-line, and Penix has a lengthy injury history. Marvin Harrison wouldn't make too much sense if there's no quarterback to throw him the ball. I wouldn't mind trading down and getting more picks to help build the team, but I feel like we need to go with the quarterback position. You do not have a choice. You know, you tried to solve it with DJ. just didn't work, but I I think that you're not going to win many games. And now you're in a position where Daniel Jones isn't even an option. You know, who knows how long Tyrod's out that you're rolling with Danny DeVito's cousin here. And say what you want about Tommy DeVito, he he ain't very good. I do, I saw a lot of people saying this. How could you have Tommy DeVito? Like, they had Daniel Jones, who they're paying $40 million, and Tyrod Taylor. You go into a season with that, and if you can't keep those two guys on the field, Whoever your third string is going to be, everyone's going to complain. So I have a hard time bitching and moaning that DeVito's in the game when you start the season with Daniel Jones and Tyrod Taylor. That's, in theory, it should be a pretty good one-two. Now, we could argue how good Daniel Jones is, but if like that's your starting quarterback, if Tyrod's your backup, you're in pretty good shape. If they're both going to get hurt, let's face it, you're fucked. I mean, you just are. So you got to just draft a quarterback. Now, I, I would take any thro- any one of those three guys. I think it just depends. Are you going to have the worst record in the league? I think it's pretty clear Carolina is. And if Carolina is, that means Chicago is. And I would imagine Chicago is going to take Caleb Williams. So then if you're drafting two, is it Drake May over Michael Penix? Which I think on the big boards right now, 100%, Drake May is viewed as the number two quarterback. So I would take Drake May, yes. He's a better, way better thrower of the ball in college than Daniel Jones. Dak and McCarthy obviously have a lot of critics, but when will the defense step up against good competition? Hurts has been turnover-prone all year, and the Cowboys' D didn't force any, although they had some bad bounces. Or get off the field in third down for the most part. I feel like they've been a huge letdown, especially when Dak played very well in that game. I think I heard a stat today that the Eagles only had one first down in the fourth quarter. I thought your defense kind of brought it down the end. Right? I mean, let's face it, the Eagles... That little stretch after the first half, when you guys are up 17-14, I'm assuming you're a Cowboys fan, and the Eagles score back-to-back touchdowns, the beautiful throw to Devontae in the corner. I forget who scored the other touchdown, but they they, they have all of a sudden it's 28-17. Like that that was a tough little stretch for the Cowboys defense. But ultimately, like they played pretty well down the stretch. So I, I have a hard time. like The defense is good, but let's face it, it's not like great. You're missing Diggs, which if you add him, I think your defense could have been, I don't want to say elite, but much better from a secondary position. Uh, but overall, like I, I think your defense did more than enough to win you that game. Do you think it's possible for Dallas and Miami to win it all with two and Dak? I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment, but nine, Week 9 confirmed for me that they can't. Both two and Dak were in position to win tie their games, but Dak took a costly sack and to a badly underthrew Wilson then fumbled the snap the next play. Again, to me, there are outcomes that are a disaster result. Like the underthrow. That's I don't really know what's going on there. But there's a sack. When your right tackle gets smoked and you get lit up. Like there's a bad sack. I, I, I would imagine if we broke all the sacks down on the last two drives from Dak. One of them, I'm sure, is on him. He's just got to throw the ball away. He can't take a sack. But if your tackles are just going to get fucking destroyed and not touch a rusher, there's not much. I, I mean, I, Deion Sanders could be taking the snap. What's going to do? He can't run away. So I. It's not all Dak's fault. And Tua, I don't. I didn't see what they said after the game about the snap. But if the center snaps it at the wrong time, like it's not always on the quarterback. I think the bigger problem is, is Dak McCarthy on the play where his knees down. They got to get over the line, and I'm sorry. At the, at the highest level, like the difference of stepping out of bounds by a couple inches and not is a pretty big deal. <laughs> like the difference of lipping out a putt and not is the difference of Tiger Woods winning and losing. The difference of, uh, you know, the, the margins at the highest level for elite players, Mahomes, whoever in any sport, it's not that big. And like it's, you could be like, God, oh, it's kind of unlucky, but I don't know. You just can't, you can't do that. That, that, that just can't happen. I, I think that's a bigger issue. The stepping out of bounds. Like, fucking leap from the forward yard line so you don't even have to worry about it. I, and I think Dak is just a better player than Tua. So I that version of Dak, you could win the Super Bowl with. Because you could have won last night. To me, Tua, you can't win the Super Bowl with Tua. I, I, I don't believe. I, I don't think it's possible. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I have more faith in, in Dak Prescott, rightfully so, than Tua. Okay, this is about Josh Dobbs. The guy's been with seven different organizations. After mustering some success in an absolute terrible situation with the Cards, he somehow manages to overcome being traded to the Vikings midweek. He entered at NASA. What a story. Totally agree. We talked about it earlier. Do you think the Dolphins are going to go to host a playoff game this season? I'm realistic and know they aren't Super Bowl threat, but this may be the first time in my life they're good enough to snag a home playoff game. I would say it's very on the table. I mean, Buffalo's in shambles right now, and we've talked a lot about it. Like, if you're a road team, I'm not picking you to win. You're the home team. You still might be playing like the Bengals. (laughs) It's not going to be easy. But there is a huge difference in the AFC for you guys, given where you play geographically in the weather of going into all those north places, right? Whether it's the Bengals, whether it's the Ravens, whether it's the Chiefs. I mean, those games are fucking freezing, so if you get a home playoff game, even if it is a pick'em against the Bengals, right, even the Steelers, I think, would be a hard game for you, though you could win that because you're out, you could score more points than they could. Not having to go to those places, you get a home playoff game and you could win it, which would be an incredible accomplishment. I don't care how up and down the season is, no matter how many times you guys lose to good teams, if you win the division and you were to win a playoff game, that's an incredible success which I definitely think is on the table now that the bills I mean, do not look right. When a team fires a coach and an OC like the Raiders did, do they change the playbook, the verbiage, or do they keep it all the same? Curious how play calling all changes. Obviously, the game plan will be different every week. You, you can't change everything. It's just you don't have enough time. And your playbook and the base of your plays are going to stay the same. But for example, with the Raiders, when they fire Josh and they fire Lombardi's kid, when they implement the new guy, Bo, I don't think his name is Bo Callahan, but Bo something. I would imagine once, because Mark Davis mandated that Aiden O'Connell start, which I don't blame him. You go to Aiden and you just start going over the plays in the playbook that he likes and he's comfortable with. And then you get with Josh Jacobs, the O-line, Devontae, you get Renfro back in the mix And you try to get on the same page of what in the playbook they like, they're successful at, they feel comfortable doing with the quarterback. And you kind of start at square one, right? Because a lot of times, I would say by the time you're in middle of October, you're running like calculus, especially if the head coach and the play caller have been there for a couple years. It's pretty complicated. I would guess once they fire those guys, they kind of get way back to the fundamentals, Let's pick a handful of things we do well and then run variations off that and not overthink this, right? W- what do you like doing, Josh? Outside zone? We're fucking hammering that this week. What do you like, Devontae? These three concepts? You and Naden work on those all week. We'll keep it simple stupid. So I-, I think it's more that than you just wouldn't have enough time to throw away the playbook. And no one would even want to do that because it's not realistic. Big Fields fan since Ohio State, and I want to know your opinion on the team you know best. Do you think there's a chance that Kyle would be interested in Fields if the Bears or the Panthers are in a top two pick? No, I do not. He did not like him at all coming out. I think he would like him way less now coming out. So do you think the 49ers could possibly elevate their ceiling? bring I 100%, the 49ers are not in the Justin Fields mix no matter what. Unless they get for cheap and he was like their third string quarterback. When when in that draft, Kyle Shannon, he was not even an option. It was a two horse race. Mac Jones, Trey Lance. He did not like him. Can we stop calling the Eagles play the Tush Push? Brotherly Shove is so much better. I personally kind of like Tush Push. That fucking play doesn't just work. They, they gained like three yards. Honestly, you could run that plan first down. If you just ran that play on first down, it'd be like second and six. When does that play ever just gain a yard? I watched so many other quarterback sneaks. Like, God, did he get that? God, Dak Prescott. He's short. God, Derek Carr. So many other quarterback sneaks, the guy is barely getting half a yard. That play, the one they ran on the goal line where they were kind of pinned and Micah Parsons jumped on... I couldn't tell if he jumped on Jalen's back or the center's back. And all of a sudden, 11 just went for like three yards toward his own end zone. Like this play... This is unstoppable. It's not even just unstoppable. It's very effective for multiple yards. I think you could, on fourth and two, you could run that play because I think you can gain two yards. Washington has looked pretty good on offense this year. Maybe it's time to give Eric Biennami some props. Well, don't they lead the league in sacks? Like, their quarterback was on record to break David Carr's record in terms of sacks in a season. All Eric Bieniemy does is call passes. He's like Steve Sarkeesian. Is he a good offensive coordinator? I, I think that is more than up for debate. Their quarterback has been getting fucking killed. I'm a Cowboys fan. I'm calling it now. Trey Lance will be our starter next year. <laughs> I, I don't even know what I'm reading. I appreciate the DM, but Josh. There is not a snowball's chance in hell. You could blindfold Dak Prescott. I could tie one of his arms behind his back, and Trey Lance could not beat him out in training camp. Do you understand how much better Cooper Rush is than Trey Lance, let alone the starting quarterback? And we can nitpick Dak all we want. Dak is in a different universe than Trey. Trey is going to go three years without starting four games. One, he's just not that good. And two, he doesn't ever get to play to improve. Absolutely no chance Trey Lance is your starter next year. Zero. Better chance of someone else owning the Cowboys next year than the Jones family, than Trey Lance starting. I mean, obviously, if Dak has a major injury or something, but just based on, like, we're just going to name this guy the starter, At no chance. He's your third-string quarterback right now. If Dak Prescott got hurt, he wouldn't even start next week. Do you find it easier to tell if someone is good a good college coach or a good NFL coach? It seems like in the NFL, coaches are entirely limited by their quarterback. In college, it seems like the program quality is correlated with most coaching records. I think it just depends, right? You could be a good coach and at a school where it's hard to win, right? So if, like, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, I think he's an absolute stud. But he's never going to win 11 games. But if you're winning eight, nine games at Oregon State, that's an incredible accomplishment, right? Like, if Dan Lanning every year won nine games... It's like, is he that good of a coach? But Dan Landing's, hell, he's competing the last two years to win 10, 11, 12 games. Right. So to me, what program you're at, it's relative to how much success you have to have. Like Lincoln, going eight and four this year, disaster. Right. But if Lincoln was going eight and four at Vanderbilt, be an incredible year. It's like Mike Leach was at Washington State at Texas Tech. You win eight, nine games. Fucking awesome. You put him at Alabama, LSU, or Georgia, you can't go nine and three. Right? It's like, I, Tyler, from uh, the dude that called in that Dabo yelled at, where well, I will defend that kid, it's stupid when it's like, do you think you're earning your money? Like, I get why Dabo gets defensive. He's, he gets angry. But Dabo, listen, you can rattle off all the stats you want of all the 10 win seasons that Clemson's had and you've won national championships. We get it. You're a star head coach. You've won a ton of games. You make a ton of money, and you've produced a ton of dudes in the league. But a, you're allowed to have a down year. Nick Saban's had some. It's called 10-3. and three. If you wouldn't have won that Notre Dame game, you would have been headed towards 6-6. Six and six. And Clemson now, through your fan base, is viewed as Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Those coaches would not be able to win 6-7 games and not have a major freakout. People freak out when you win nine games, like Brian Kelly this year. He's going to have "quote unquote" an underwhelming year, and he's going to go nine and three, right? That, that's if that's your underwhelming year. No issue, no problem, right? But you go seven and five, like I get some fans being like, "What's going on?" Think the NFL would ever consider a weekly standalone game in the nine thirty a.m. Eastern window? Digging the European game start times must be what Sundays feel like on the West Coast. More real estate to claim on Sundays might be a little early for folks out west, but hey, most of us in the east are not staying up for the uh, three weekly night games. What do you think the players would think of regular morning games on U.S. soil? Yeah, that that's not happening. There's no chance because think about this: like when the East Coast think about like a Ohio State or Michigan game that kicks off at nine Pacific Standard Time, it's still noon. So like the 9.30 a.m. game, that, that's, that, that's not good for your product. I think you just, keep, you just do seven, eight European games a year and do that kickoff spot. Arizona, which I, clearly I think it was passed in Congress or the Senate or whatever, we're not going to do this daylight savings time in a couple years ever again, which I like. Just keep the fucking clocks at the same time. For some reason, Arizona, half the year Pacific Standard Time and then half the year Mountain Standard Time. So right now, I'm on Mountain Standard Time. I'm recording this part about 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. Typically, Monday Night Football was start in 15 minutes. But now that I'm on Mountain Standard Time, i got to wait another hour and 10 minutes for the game to start. So it's like, I don't know what we're doing. But my point is, when that game came on, sometimes, you know, Sunday, a little sleep in, especially if I had a few pops or maybe went to dinner or whatever on Saturday night. Not a crazy party or anything, but I might get up at, 7.30, whatever, 8 o'clock on Sunday. One of the only days of the week where I really sleep in. And this week, I, I and I even went out to dinner and went out on Saturday. I woke up at about 7.15. I was like, ah, oh, the game's on. Usually I miss minimum the first half. I watched that entire game. So I'm with you. The, you on the East Coast, you got it pretty good. That, that 9.30 kickoff's pretty awesome. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I can't see them doing this in the States, but I do think they're just going to have more and more international games, which clearly they like. Okay. Last question. Loyal Ole Miss follower here watching Lane Kiffin uh, and A&M as I type this, but question is thoughts on Jimbo Fisher and A&M's future. NIL and transfer portal has changed college football as we know, but what is keeping A&M and Jimbo from getting over the hump to becoming a top tier college football program? They have lots of money with Texas oil money, in-state talent. Jimbo Fisher is a relatively qualified head coach, but it just doesn't seem like they're going to be a 10-win team regularly. I know that this is a great example of money can't buy you a championship with the talent, but any thoughts? See, I kind of call bullshit. Look at Texas. Money is literally buying them a 12-1 team that's going to go to the playoffs if Sark just doesn't screw it up. Money bought that team literally that I think they have the highest payroll in all of college football. I've been told that by multiple people. And obviously there are several programs spending a lot of money. They're right there with AM spending the most. So to me, Jimbo, we just talked about this, like how we judge coaches like Arthur Smith. Like I, I could just watch Arthur Smith. He's not as good as a head coach as he was as an offensive coordinator. And some guys get overwhelmed in that position. Right. Josh McDaniels, another great example. Make him a head coach. Like, Jesus Christ, what the hell is going on here? Yet in college, right, like it's relative to the school you're at. Look at what Lane Kiffin is doing at Ole Miss. When, when I was in like college or growing up, to me, Ole Miss was always a school that had some sweet players, an Eli, a Patrick Willis. But look at their records. A lot of times they were struggling to just get bowl eligible, win six, seven games. I looked up yesterday, he's winning that game against Jimbo, who has a much better roster than him, and Lane's, I don't know, at minimum headed to be 10-2. and What a freaking season by Lane Kiffin. So like, you watch Lane Kiffin, what he's doing at Ole Miss, imagine giving him Oregon, or Texas, or Florida. You're not going to lose, because he's proving over and over and over again that schematically he can coach and he can get guys to overachieve. Imagine if he had the budget to get the good talent. I would take Lane in a heartbeat over Sark. Now, some say that Sark actually, especially at this point, a little more buttoned up as a program, Lane. You know, I I don't really know how to describe it, but depending on who you talk to, you can get some different versions of Lane. All I know, I judge people on how their team looks, and I watch Lane's team at Ole Miss fucking take down people left and right. I mean, the dude this year beat LSU and A&M again. He's not going to beat Bama okay. He's literally beating everyone else that he plays in that conference. So I think Jimbo might just be not good. I, I think it really might be that simple. I just don't think he's a good coach at this point in time in 2023. I think he was good a while back, but you're either getting better or you're getting worse, and clearly he's gotten worse. Maybe the time's changed on him maybe the portal he doesn't you know in terms of the way to coach guys he's he can be i've heard a major a-hole in terms of at practice and his coaching style it's one thing when Sabin's yelling at you or kirby's yelling at you you know it works it's like jimbo what, what you're saying even work and it's it's another disaster now i know bruce feldman has reported that he's talked to people around the program jimbo fisher's buyout is over 75 million dollars and he was quoted from a source that like the buyout will not be an issue. I think that's pretty crazy. Like you're going to be able to get $75 million to pay him to go away. I don't care how rich some of your boosters are. Like you're just going to give like here's $20 million to get rid of Jimbo at like three people, four people pitch in. I don't know. Like I wouldn't cut the check. And even if I had unlimited money, it's like just so we could hire another Jimbo Fisher. So I, I do think once you get to certain amounts it's gonna get a little more difficult and become a little more cumbersome on the whole process of like resetting. I mean, we're at amounts of money. If his buyout was 27 million, I'd be like, yeah, he's done. I could see the buyout just surviving him one more year, but no way around it. Utter disaster at AM. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank everyone behind the scenes for helping out with Three and Out Podcasts, producers, video producers, audio producers. We got a lot of people at the volume. The team is kicking serious ass and taking serious names. And thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Talk soon. See ya. The
4: volume.
1: It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff died back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff.